I want to continue a little bit of what we started last week. We, we looked in the book of Isaiah, and we looked at Isaiah 60, and that was a chapter that is the transition point in the book of Isaiah, where it switches from before that point, the picture that Isaiah paints is very dreary, kind of like some of our weather outside. Shades of gray, black and white, not a lot of color and life. And then Isaiah 60 comes along, and it starts out by saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And it kind of marks this pivot point, a message of hope for God's people as they returned from exile in a foreign land. I want to jump back a little bit earlier in Isaiah this morning. So we'll be reading a section from Isaiah 49 and also from John chapter 1. And the main question for today is this one that's on the screen. What do you want? And it's a question that actually, depending on the tone in which you ask it, can mean different things. Somebody taps you on the shoulder when you're in the midst of something, you say, what do you want? I don't think that that's the tone that Jesus is trying to convey when Jesus says these words, what do you want? It, perhaps it was, but I, I kind of doubt it a little bit. It's a question that we have all heard before in different ways. And we might each even have a few ideas of what do we want. Maybe I want a pair of shoes that doesn't get so wet in the rain. Maybe I want some lo- a lower cholesterol number. Maybe what we want is a vacation, or you can fill in the blank about some of those types of things that you think you might want. You all have different ideas of what that might be. We can't really escape this question because it is asked and answered for us all the time. We're often told what we want and that it can be yours all for four easy low payments of $9.99. Deep within us, however, something in our core yearns for something more. That question, what do you want, is actually one of the most important questions in the Bible. It speaks to that core within us that yearns for something deeper. Somehow we know that all of the things that we might think we want, and even the good things of this life, will not fulfill our deepest needs and our strongest yearnings in this life. So as we ask this question this morning, think, what do you or me, or we, really need instead of want? What are we most longing and hoping for in this world? This was good timing that that just shut off because what I was just going to say was perhaps we'd like a little more silence in this world or maybe a little more peace in our loud, crazy lives. I know I could use a little more peace from time to time. Maybe what you are longing for and what you really want or need is deeper, a deeper relationship 
in this increasingly digitally connected yet virtually isolated world. The more connected we are through some of our technology, which is wonderful, wonderful tools, ironically, the more isolated we seem to feel. Maybe what you yearn for is a community to belong to in a world that praises the individual and yet a world that feels lonelier than ever. Do you know that loneliness is actually considered a cause of death in some parts of the world now? That loneliness has a physical impact on our lives. People are dying of loneliness. It could be that you desire most to have more hope and courage in this year. In a time where fear seeks to push at you and keep you locked in despair or trapped in anxiety. Maybe that's what you are yearning for, what you most want. Or perhaps you simply want most to rest in a culture that honors busyness and elevates it as a god, yet a busyness that can quickly drain you of life and energy. I could go on and on, and you might be able to fill in the blanks about what some of those things are that you want most. As you think about this, I want us to turn to the Word of God, and then we're going to return to and expand upon this very question, what do you need? Last week, I I said we shared a message of hope from Isaiah 60, and that is when God decided to act in the midst of darkness And he speaks to his people. This week, we're going to begin a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 49. I'm just going to read a few verses from it. Now, this is earlier in the story when God's people are actually still considered in exile. They've been taken into captivity, defeated by a powerful enemy. They are alienated from their land and their God. And in the midst of this crisis of identity and faith, Isaiah again speaks a word of hope in the midst of their hardship. It's a message that actually speaks to this question, what do you want? Indeed, in his time, it says God will send someone to free them. And not just anyone, but a servant who will restore them And right now, God's people are thinking, yes, we're going to be restored. We're going to get all of our stuff back. We're going to get our land back. Our city is back. We're going to rebuild the temple. All those good things that we enjoyed, it's all going to come back. And yes, that is a part of it. But what this servant comes to bring is far more than that. It's far more than God's people even had dreamed upon at this point because it was going to be a mission that would involve the whole world. Let me read verse 1 and then verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. I kind of thought of that Listen Linda video. Listen Linda. Listen to me, you islands. Another translation says, listen to me, you coastlands. Maybe that's partly our area. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. And then down in verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, 
Remember, all of God's people, those that had remained at this point, were in exile. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel message in the Old Testament, at least part of it. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And this is a section of scripture that Israel, God's people, really held on to for a long time. And while it, yes, meant initial restoration in their time, it was also a piece of scripture that pointed ahead to that greatest servant of all, Jesus. And it even points further than that, that through Jesus, God actually would call each one of his people today into that same kind of mission, a mission of service, servanthood. Jesus came to serve, and he says, follow me. Look like me, model me. It's a call into service as well. All of this came together in the person of Jesus, sent to earth for that mission of restoration and redemption and salvation. And because God is always working, acting on behalf of creation and humanity, it means he is speaking to and meeting our deepest needs in life. Fast forward from this moment, hundreds of years pass. The people of God have been brought out of exile, back to their homeland. They were initially thankful for God's help. And then what do you think happens over time? They grow forgetful once again. I mean, we can't be too down on them because we do the same kind of thing in our life. And they're once again under the thumb of another empire. They have had a measure of restoration, a measure of what God has promised through Isaiah, but the extent of God's promise of a Savior, a Redeemer, has not yet been fully realized for them. And the years pass, and they wait for one who would come to save them, even though no one really knew what that all meant. Enter onto the scene an unusual man, John the Baptist. We know he was unusual. The Bible talks about him in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A kind of crazy man with crazy hair who lived in the desert, ate a bunch of weird food, and then suddenly heard the call of God and lived into what God called him to do and be. John the Baptist reveals that his role is to announce the coming of the Messiah. And to prepare the people for this, he offers a baptism of repentance in water. And it's no wonder that people wanted to come see what he was all about. Was he the one that people wanted? Was he the one that people were waiting for? Was he the Messiah? 
Some wondered. And he came out of the wilderness speaking and preaching with impressive authority. People are like, where did this guy come from? So much so that he gained a following. He gained disciples of his own who followed him and like sat at his feet and listened to him and learned from him. And it attracted the attention of the existing religious leaders. They immediately felt threatened by this. And so they went to investigate. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 19. If I can get there. There we are. Chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? This would be the prophet that Moses had spoke about hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And he answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You can just imagine how threatened they were. Or if they themselves didn't feel threatened, they certainly were getting pressure on their leaders as well. Like, you better figure out who this guy is so we can secure our power and privilege and place. John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. I'll stop there for now. John is clear to say who he's not. I am not the one you're looking for. This is not the Messiah you're looking for. In true Star Wars-esque, these are not the droids you're looking for. He is not Elijah or the prophet foretold. The Pharisees, however, are asking the wrong questions. They only want to know who he is, and they don't ask about why he's there. They miss his purpose. His purpose is to prepare the people for Jesus. You see, Jesus is already born at this point. He's been living with a family. Presumably, he's been learning how to be a carpenter, making rickety tables and chairs as a novice. He might even have made something like this, but it certainly wouldn't be straight. He was learning how to do all those things. But Jesus is already learning about what it's like to be a human being at this point. Even the ones who were following John the Baptist didn't realize at first that John the Baptist was not the one that they truly wanted or needed. They just thought he was a great teacher. Maybe he was the one, but they hadn't yet realized it. 
And then Jesus enters the picture. The Gospel of John records the baptism of Jesus from a different perspective than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all concerned with telling the story of how Jesus is baptized and what people saw and experienced in that moment. But John does something a little bit different. If you read the baptism of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll hear about Jesus going into the water and what happens, but the Spirit of God, it says, descends upon him like a dove, like a visible form. And then it says, a voice from heaven was heard saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John doesn't say any of that. He assumes that you already know all of that and he goes right into what was seen and experienced by the people. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then he ends with this. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. What John wants to do here is take the focus off of himself. See, people have been following him around. He immediately says, no, take your focus off of me. This guy is the one. He's the one that you need to follow. He is the one that you want. He is the one that will speak to your deepest Need. Don't look at me anymore. I'm just here to prepare the way for him. Jesus is the one sent to restore and redeem and ultimately save. It's at this point that people start to notice Jesus. Perhaps he was also someone not noteworthy to look at, just a normal guy who had suddenly had something amazing happen that everyone was able to see. And whatever they saw in that moment, whatever they heard from heaven, was enough to cause people to want to follow after Jesus now, not John. And this is when things began to change. You see, following Jesus actually prompts a response from him. It prompts a response and an invitation So let's conclude this part of the story. This is the last section I'm going to read this morning, starting in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples, that's the disciples of John the Baptist, heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked this question, what do you want? What do you want? 
This is really Jesus' first kind of public act of ministry in his life. Now, we know that these disciples didn't truly understand all that Jesus was asking them in this moment because they immediately say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? As if they are asking Jesus, what house are you in? Are you in this red house or this blue house? Where do we go? Do we turn left at Harbor Street and go down? Do we have to bypass around the flooding? How do we get to where you're staying? They start asking for all this information. Jesus, however, decides to not answer their question. Instead, he decides to do something differently. He starts with this question, what do you want? And then he says, come, follow me, or come and see. Question and invitation. You see, when Jesus asked them that first question, what do you want? That word want is a really special word actually for us. It's a word that means to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. It's not like, do I want a Lexus? No, I don't. Do I want a million dollars? Well, sure, that would be nice. No, this is about serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. It can also mean things like to strive for, to aim at, to desire, to try to obtain, to wish for. And so this simple question, what do you want, has a lot of variations. Things like, what are you looking for? What do you seek most in life? What is your deepest need? What do you truly seek? Let me read the last couple of verses. This is what the two disciples decided to do after Jesus had come, and you will see. So they went, saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. This guy's an evangelist. He's the first one. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought his brother to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Cephas means rock, which when translated is Peter. Jesus immediately speaks into their lives. Jesus' question, what do you want, is a question that he asks each of us. He asks you and he asks me. I want to share a testimony this morning that was sent to me yesterday. And I have a couple of pictures to kind of support this testimony. Most of you have been on a highway before, whether by choice or not. So you'll recognize something like this. This is just a random off-ramp. This is an off-ramp, and behind that do not enter sign, there's a sign in the distance that says, 
basically no pedestrians. No non-motorized vehicles past this point. It's a random off-ramp outside of a little town called Moose Lake, Minnesota. It's off of one of the interstates. And this is the testimony that was shared with me. It was well after sundown and well below zero. I was hitchhiking back from Minneapolis, and I got dropped off at the top of this ramp. I have a second picture here. This is what this ramp looked like about a week ago on January 7th. The man who got dropped off at the top of the ramp said, what I wanted and needed most was a ride all the way back home. See, he didn't live at this exit. And at the time that this happened, this was in 1973, 50 years ago, January 7th, there wasn't an on-ramp at that point. So when he was dropped off by the person who was giving him a ride partway home, he didn't know how he was going to get all the way home. So he said he started to walk down this ramp. He was going to go back down to the interstate and hopefully hitch a ride back to town. Suddenly a car drove past me and stopped. And I heard a voice calling out to me, Steve, is that you? And I was overjoyed. I was relieved and thankful that a car had stopped to give me a ride. This is the spot that my dad met my mom 50 years ago on January 7th. And it makes no sense that that car would take this particular exit because there wasn't a way to get back on to the interstate. It makes no sense. Yesterday, 50 years ago, this is what my dad wrote. It was 50 years ago I called on Jesus. It was a Sunday night one week after this moment. I had gone to see the movie Sounder, so this is 1973, in West Duluth. And leaving the theater, I sensed a need, that I needed something. And that something was Jesus. I drove across town to an address 4827 East Superior Street, where some young Jesus people were gathered. Sometimes they were called Jesus freaks. They were like the hippie version of Jesus, of the Jesus movement. And one of those people was my mom, who was 19 years old at the time. My dad said he circled the block a few times until I got the courage to go in. I was scared. My dad was 20 at the time. I sat down and I hung my head. I was too afraid to look at anyone. And then one of the guys, whose name was Dan, asked if I wanted to talk, and I said yes. And we went to a little room at this location where a house was. It's not there anymore, but this is the location where that house was. And we talked, and he shared with me the gospel tract, the four spiritual laws. Then I prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me and make me a new person, and I meant it for the first time in my life. Dan shared the verse 1 Peter 5, 7 with me, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He said I could tell Jesus anything, and I sure did. I confessed everything I could think of, and I cried like a baby, 
It felt like a giant weight was lifted off me, and I kept telling Jesus until there was nothing left to tell him. I was born again that night, and I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm still so thankful. When I got this from my dad yesterday, it was a long text, and those of you that know, I've shared the story of one of the downsides of Parkinson's is your thumbs don't work very well. So to get a text that's this long from someone who can't text very well, I knew that he really wanted us to know this story and to share this testimony with God's people. Yesterday he said he was going to drive out to that theater where he walked out of, and then he was going to drive to this lot just so he could praise God for answering his prayer from 50 years ago yesterday. And that's why I'm here, because of what happened then. And he's there because of what happened through someone else. And backwards and backwards and backwards. That chain of grace that we sang about earlier. That whole line of faith being passed on. And that's the way that God works. In really weird and mysterious ways, orchestrating some car to just stop and pick you up on the side of the road. And it happens to be someone that you know. But it doesn't make any sense of why they're there. When Jesus says, what do you want? I'm sure that those two disciples of John didn't understand very much. Just like when Jesus first spoke to you, you probably didn't know very much either. I know I certainly didn't know hardly anything. But they knew that they wanted to learn from this new teacher, that he had something to offer that would speak to the deepest parts of them. And little did they know that he would change their world and the world forever. The whole reason you are here is because of what happened to some of these people in the Bible. Jesus simply gives them a simple invitation. Come and you will see. It's a simple invitation at face value, yet we know that the seeing that Jesus invites each one of us into is far beyond improving our eyesight. You see, invitations are relational. When you get an invitation to a party, it's not just about what you eat or drink or wear or play. It's about the relationships that you have and make along the way. So Jesus' invitation is simple. Come and you will see. Simple and yet totally loaded with different understandings. He doesn't push you into it. He doesn't give you the hard sell. It's clear. It's concise. It's welcoming. It's just a simple invitation. And that is what Christ does for each one of us. Come and you will see. Come and you'll see where I am and who I am. Come and your eyes will be open to the truth. Come and you'll truly see for the very first time in your life. So my question to you, my friends and family, is what do you want to see from Jesus today? What do you hope to see? What do you need to see? Because Jesus is inviting you whether it's the first time or the 50th time. 
Follow me and you will see. Amen, let's pray. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you work in this world. And I've got to be honest, sometimes it makes no sense. In fact, most of the time it makes no sense. You do things differently. You work through unlikely people. You call wayward sons back to you. You use rebel daughters to get through to them. You use people that have no skills, and yet in you they do mighty things. I pray for each person here this morning, Lord, that we would once again be able to hear that question and respond to your invitation to come to you, to follow you, to be aware that what we most need and want is you, and that you have the ability to lead us into all truth and understanding, and that when we respond to you, it actually will prompt us to continue this chain that we've been in, to be servants like you were. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for coming to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will now surround us and inspire us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.